Church, the question for us this week is, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to have a great family? What does it mean to have a great church? What does it mean to be part of a great country? How do we define greatness? For us as individuals, when we are eulogized at our funerals, uh, will we have been said to have lived great lives? Are we a great spouse? Are we a great sibling? Are we a great son or daughter for our parents? Are we a great employee? How do we define that? President Trump, four years ago, campaigned on the slogan, Make America Great Again. Kind of appealing to those in the country that felt like something was slipping away, or there had been better days before that we could reclaim, or that there were things that were going in a wrong direction, whether it be values in the country, or economics, or policies that could be made great again. And he won on that campaign promise. And now four years later, uh, we're left to decide, you know, is America greater than when he began? Did America become great again? What steps were made towards that? What progress was made towards that? And obviously with the election, the country is highly divided on those that feel like uh, America is becoming great again. You know, this is succeeding. This plan is working. And others that feel like, no, uh, America is slipping away. And I think the reason that we can be so divided is that we might be defining greatness as uh, two totally different things. If you define greatness as a certain thing, then when you work towards it, you may be achieving it, but someone who's defining it as something totally different may say, well, these aren't helping me get where I want to go, or this isn't what I want. And so actually the the values of our country, what we think is important as individuals, uh, is showing that we would define greatness differently. And so it's impossible to achieve the same great uh, in America if there, are, uh, there is a very divided country that's defining it differently. Now, regardless of where you stand on the country and its greatness, I think that this question is hugely important for us as Christians to ask. What does it mean to be a great Christian? Are you a great Christian? Am I a great Christian? Is our church a great church? Ah, oh, yeah, I go to a great church. Well, how would you define that? What sort of things make it a great church? Well, the people are really friendly and welcoming and the music's great and they got lots of outreach into the community and the pastor's preaching from the word. And like, like, well, what are the criteria that you would use to define if the church is great? You know, how about the church, capital C, all around the United States, Christianity? You know, what, what does it mean for Christianity to be great? And how do we define it? I heard a a pastor once kind of uh, actually very sarcastically say that the measure of a church's greatness is uh, butts and bucks. Butts in the seats and bucks in the bank. So the number of people that attend services and events and the amount of money that the church is bringing in. And he was talking sarcastically about a different value structure than what we hold to, and I don't think what he held to. Um, but there are definitely some that would say, I'm part of a great church. Oh, it's a big church. It's doing this. It's doing that. We have lots of people that came to this event. We were able to get a big name speaker come. We are able to raise X. And so the largeness of the church activities and population then is becoming the defining characteristic for whether it's great or not. So being part of a smaller church congregation, we can either feel that we're not as good if we're comparing ourselves by those standards, or we could feel like, well, it means something different to be great. And so then we may actually be driving towards a different goal than larger and more lucrative. And so definition of great is going to determine what steps we take to get where we're going to go. 
Now, this is actually a specific question that was asked of Jesus by two of his disciples. And actually, their mother asked the question as well. So it gives you a feeling for their whole family, how they perceived things. And uh, these were two of the very first, not the two first, but actually the third and fourth disciples that ever followed Jesus. They were there from the beginning. And one of them is the only male, only male disciple, the only man that we hear uh, that was at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die. Um, these two men were fishermen. Uh, it says that when they were leaving their fishing boats and their father, they left him and all their hired hands and their boats and followed Jesus. So they come from a family of means, of wealth, multiple boats, multiple hired hands, and the father overseeing the sons and their work. Um, they were going to inherit the family business. They were working hard. Uh, we get clues from Jesus that they were uh, kind of, I don't know, strong in either personality or in charisma uh, or in boldness. We don't know. He actually nicknames them the Sons of Thunder, these two brothers. Their names were James and John, and they were part of the inner three, the closest three disciples to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the closest. They were there from the very beginning. All the way through, they were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him uh, uh, everywhere, all the way to the Last Supper. And then they were there after the resurrection, after the ascension. They were in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So these three, Peter, James, and John, had a special place in Jesus' heart. And at one point along the road, we're going to read, they come to him, uh, James and John do, and say, Jesus uh, we want to sit at your right and left hand. And he says, you don't actually know what you're asking for. You want to be important in my kingdom. You want to be central. You want to be recognized and elevated. But it's going to take you sacrificing your lives to do that. A position of honor in my kingdom is not a powerful one in terms of controlling others. It's a sacrificial one in terms of submitting ourselves to servanthood to everyone around us for the sake of the cross, for the sake of the gospel. And so I think from these sons of thunder, these very bold men, uh, we'll read a couple of scriptures where they're kind of described and we get to see a little bit of their personality. They raise the question for us, what does it mean to be great? And Jesus answers it point blank. He says, the greatest among you must be servant of all. And I just wonder if we are trying to define ourselves as being great at our job if we would say that it's because we serve everyone around us. If you're saying we have a great family, is it because everyone in the family serves each other selflessly? You know, at our funeral, when people speak of us, if they say we had a great life, it most likely will be that we did things that meant something to them, that we were there for them at important times, or, or said something that was a blessing to them, or helped in a way, or loved in a way. It was our blessing to them, our benefit to them, our, our servanthood towards them. And most likely, when we look back on our own regrets, it's the times where we did what was best for us, when we were self-centered, when we put ourselves over others, that most of the problems and most of the sins and most of the consequences in our lives came as a result. And so I think in our country, as we're trying to define what it means to be great, uh, in the Christian church, maybe we have the same feeling, like, we should, I wish the church, what, would we, what could we do to make the church great again? 
Is there a feeling maybe that the church somehow is, has slipped from its purpose or, or slipped in some ways, even small ways, from what it was meant to be? Well, then what would it mean to make Christianity great again in Jesus' definition of great? What would it mean for us to be great Christians? Well, two of the closest people to Jesus asked that question, and so let's look into their lives and learn more about them, learn more about us, and then I'll just ask uh, you to take some time with your missional community and ask yourselves, what would it mean for our community to be great? What would it mean for our family units, for us as individuals, for singles, for our college kids, for students? What does it mean to be great? And I think if we can explore that, then actually we'll find ourselves as part of the revival that we're praying for, as part of the transformation of our homes and our missional communities and our churches and Christianity, and ultimately then the country around us. Uh, it's starting small and starting in a place of servanthood. So let's learn a little bit about James and John. In Mark 1, starting with... Uh, Verse 6, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. He calls them. Zebedee is the father, James and John, brothers, leave the hired servants and immediately follow Jesus. Now in Mark 3, uh, it says, uh, Jesus appointed twelve whom he named apostles, means sent ones, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and he lists the other. So Jesus gave them the nickname sons of thunder. What sort of personality might they have had? What sort of people might they have been? What sort of presence might they have had to have for him to say, you are sons of thunder? He names Peter the Rock. Right? Because he's going to build his church on this man. And then he does. And these sons of thunder, this, this forceful fisherman, these powerful figures who are with him, his closest people from the beginning all the way on to the very end. Now in Mark uh, 1.28, we read this. His fame, Jesus' fame, spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And he immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So right from the first, the beginning, Simon's mother-in-law, James and John, are right there. They're right after Simon and Andrew. They're the next disciples that are called. In Matthew 17, we see them again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. So only three of the disciples went up the mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The, the closest to him, the ones who had stood with him from the very beginning, they're there to see him look bright, white like the sun shining and Elijah and Moses and seeing him have this spiritual heavenly conversation 
They were there every step of the way, his closest. You know, in in terms of the, the 12 apostles and then the closest three, and then the crowds, which were 70 and 120, uh, we see this model for for friendships and ministry. I know we've talked about this before in the church, but we can see it here. It's only highlighted. Jesus had his closest three, Peter, James, and John. Do you have a close three? The people that you rely on, the people that you pray with, the people that know you, the people that hold you accountable, the people who love you and would do anything for you. And do you have your 12, you know, your small group, your missional community, your your larger group of friends circle where you do things together and, and you, you help each other and you serve and you learn and you worship and you you have fun together and you do activities together. Just the people in your circle. And then do you have the church the way Jesus had all of his disciples and followers? You know, and the crowds were looking on, but he had this large group um, this is a, a biblical principle for fellowship and for ministry, for friendship and partnership and relationships. So we get to see it here again being played out. Mark 13 shows a private conversation that Jesus had. Mark 13, 1. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Peter and James and John are there. Peter's brother, uh, Andrew, is with them. It's the first four, the, the fishermen. He said, Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And he's saying, This temple is going to be destroyed. And they're saying, Tell us the signs. When will these things happen? You know, these four, especially the three, uh, and James and John in particular, are part of the most intimate moments in Jesus' lives. They're the inner circle. They hear his thoughts. They ask him questions. He answers things for them that he doesn't even answer for anyone else. This is that position of honor they had. In Luke 9, starting with verse 51, we see a, another description of their kind of personality coming through. There's one only a couple of times where they, they speak and we get to see and hear their personality. Maybe it's a hint as to why they were called the sons of thunder. Uh, they have a pretty aggressive question here for Jesus, a pretty bold, a pretty, pretty thunderous thing. They're asking for signs before. They want a sign now, uh, the power of God kind of sign. So let's read together in Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the people in the town didn't accept him, didn't let him come make the Passover meal. It's that season. And he went to set it up and um, the people in the town you know, rebuffed the disciples. Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. They want fire from heaven on these people who wouldn't even take the Messiah in for the Passover and preparation for his death and resurrection. They don't see the whole story yet, but they, they know he's going towards Jerusalem. They know he's going to be the king. And this town... They clearly believe in Jesus' power. They clearly believe he's from God. If he can give them the A-OK -okay to call down fire from heaven, this is like Sodom and Gomorrah. This city didn't re re uh, accept you, Jesus. Just give us the word. We'll say the prayer, you know, sons of thunder. 
They see Jesus' greatness as a, as a power thing and as a status thing. That's what it means to be great, that at the snap of a finger, Jesus could call down fire. And of course he could, but that's not why he came. And so they're learning what it means to be great. It says there in verse 45, he turned and rebuked them. Remember, Peter said, you couldn't be crucified, Lord. And he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter. He rebukes them here as he's heading towards his crucifixion. We're not here to call down the fire. We're here to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Sons of thunder. We often want to be like sons of thunder. We see things that are wrong in the world and like, this is wrong. God, call down the thunder. Call down the fire. You know, work in power. Let's, let's, let's manifest the kingdom here in a powerful way. And Jesus said, well, that's not why I came. Don't you know what true greatness is? It's to sacrifice yourself <coughs> for another. Now, we see in Matthew 20, and there's a, a parallel passage in Mark 10. So I'm going to read the, most of the full one from Matthew 20 and then just refer to the one from Mark 10. But as they're going to Jerusalem we see um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee speak up. Now, we actually see her again at the cross. So this mother and her two sons uh, left. You know, Zebedee's wife and sons are traveling with Jesus. And they're there at the cross. Well, at least John is and his mother. And so these are people very close to Jesus. This is a woman that he's known uh, maybe from even before, but certainly from the calling. And certainly as her sons are following, then she at some point joined in and is traveling with them. And she sees Jesus. She has that kind of perspective on life. I think their whole family do. Maybe it comes from being Zebedee's family with his many fishing boats, perhaps, and many hired hands. Maybe they came from a position of status or wealth or success or achievement. And so they look at Jesus like, here's a king. He's talking about the kingdom. It's coming. They're seeing it in terms of earthly status and success and power. And so Jesus has to correct that thinking. And he does. In Matthew 20, starting with verse 18. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now when the ten heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them all to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whomever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the world recognizes greatness by how much do you have under your control? 
How much can you dictate and move around? How much money do you have at your disposal? How many people do you have under your command? The rulers of the Gentiles said, but for you, it has to be the other way. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So how many can you serve? That's Jesus' definition of greatness. Whoever be first among you must be last, must be your servant. Now, lest we think that this is just the mother wishing something for her sons, in Mark's um, recounting of this situation, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, again, it says Jesus going towards Jerusalem, same setting, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. They want to be on the throne. They want to be on the the right and the left hand of the king and the kingdom. And he's saying, you want to be over people, but I'm telling you to serve all. Consider others greater than yourselves. This is the definition of Christian greatness. Do we want to make our, make the church great again? Well, then it needs to become the servant to all. And a lot of times churches as organizations and local can become very self-serving. Their money serves themselves. Their time serves themselves. Their ministries are made for themselves. And I think in some ways this misses the point of greatness as Jesus defines it. When we call ourselves a gathering and assembling of believers, the question must be, who are we serving? And not just serving ourselves, but as if we were the 12 disciples. Jesus gave our lives as a ransom for many, serving others. When we collect money, it should be distributed to help those in need. Right? When we have programs, it should be to help those who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. Maybe meeting physical needs, but as a route to sharing that God meets soul needs and spiritual needs. And when we do that together, we, we've, we become a band of disciples. We enjoy doing that together, but it's not just for us. We're not looking to be over others. Look what we have come to us. It's be sent out, be apostles What can we introduce you? How can we introduce you to Christ? What can we do for you? Remember, I said it on a sermon a while back, you know, what's the best question in the world? We ask that question in our house sometimes. We define the best question in the world is, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? You know, that's the best question in the world. So if I see Michelle is overwhelmed or something needs to be done, I'll turn to wherever kids are around and be like, all right, go ask your mom the best question in the world. And they'll go into the kitchen. Mom, what can we do to help? It's become this like mantra sort of thing, a value in our family. And I think about that in terms of this definition of greatness. The best question we could ever ask someone is, what can I do to help you? It's, it's the question that Christ asks. You know, what do you want? What do you need? Are you blind? Are you lame? Are you hungry? Are you broken hearted? Are you in prison? Are you alone? Are you discouraged? And God meets those needs through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, to introduce us to glory. So these disciples didn't quite understand all that. We can see it says that later on John writes uh, in the Gospel of John, which he was the author of, 
right? That is this John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's John, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee. John is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters of John. There is a John who wrote Revelation. There's some discussion whether it's this John or another, but, you know, this John, this son of thunder, this one who wants to be great, ends up writing one of the four gospel accounts, the biographical accounts we have of Jesus. And by serving in that way, communicating, uh, he truly did become great. He's left us a lasting legacy um, by just sharing with us the good news of Christ through his own eyes, his own eyewitness account. So we go towards the end of Jesus' time with the disciples. In Mark 14, 32, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, just to see again the closeness of James and John with Jesus. Mark 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. John chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Mary followed Jesus. We know that James and John and their mother traveled with him the whole time. And at the very end, as Jesus is being crucified, he kind of like commissions John to care for his mother in his absence. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, joins John, the son of Zebedee's household. And he cares for her. After Christ dies, rises, and ascends. This is the closeness that John had with him. And in the Gospel of John, as he's writing, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this can be kind of taken one of two ways. One, it could be a statement of real humility. Like he doesn't even use his own name. He's like, I was there, I was there, I was there. He just refers to himself in the third person, sort of like, well, the one that Jesus could even love. He would have the right He was with Jesus the closest of all. In all these intimate moments, he's there. Uh, You know, even with the the foot washing, that's in John's gospel and not in the others. The way Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, talk about certain instances, you get even an insider's glimpse. There's more recorded um, uh, talking from Jesus. You know, the red letters of Jesus in the Bible, there's more recorded sayings of Christ in John than in any other gospels. This is a gospel written by someone a biography written by someone who was there, an eyewitness, who heard these words and wrote them down. Uh, This is the one who ultimately Jesus says, please take care of my mom when I'm gone. That's how close they were. And he's the only disciple that we see listed at the cross along with those women who are there. Now, in John 20, we also see that John and Peter are the two that run back to the tomb 
when it's empty. So John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as of yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John was there. John saw the empty tomb. Now there's a situation where Jesus appears again to the disciples and he reinstates Peter. And he makes a comment about John as well. Uh, this is in John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And it goes on to talk about Jesus standing on the shore and saying, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And they have this huge catch of fish. And Peter jumps out of the boat and like swims in. He's got this impulsive nature. <laughs> we know Peter. Uh, the rest of the disciples, or the fishermen, are, are left to like drag in the nets with fish on their own. But they have this meal together. And Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is Peter to have a chance to be forgiven for the three times he said, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus. And um, Jesus at the end of that says something to Peter about the way that he would die. Verse 18, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, the one who had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So John is the one who asked the question. Judas was right there as well, and John was right there. He saw the whole thing. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I return, what is that to you? So this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's saying, this is me. I am the one who's writing this gospel of John. This is the me, the one who is there with Jesus for that breakfast of fish on the seashore. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did so many more things than were written there, and John saw so many more of these things, but he recorded what he recorded so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we might have eternal life. He wrote it for the purpose of people being saved. Now, there's just two more mentions for James and John in Scripture. And then we'll just take a moment to think about greatness for ourselves. 
In Acts 1, 12, after the ascension, all the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and all of them were there, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Mary has now been given to John to care for. She's there. James and John are there. Most likely their mother was there as well. They're all praying. There were 120 people there, and Peter talks to them. He preaches. So we know that they maintained faithfulness all the way through, that they saw it all from beginning to end. Now the last place that we see them mentioned uh, is in Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, 1, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this is where Peter is in prison and the church prays for him and he is released miraculously and comes to the door and, and you know interrupts their prayer meeting by saying, I'm out of prison. And they don't believe that it's him, but God was answering their prayers. But we see there in Acts 12 that James was killed by Herod. Uh, he was probably the first, the record we have of the first of the disciples to be martyred for his faith. And then we believe that John was like the last to be martyred. He, he lived, he wrote his gospel, he wrote the letters to the church, he may have written the book of Revelation while he was on Patmos. Like he's, we have the first and the last, these two brothers, these sons of thunder, these ones who wanted to call down the fire from heaven, these ones who were on the Mount of Transfiguration, these ones who were there at the cross, the ones who were there at the empty tomb, the ones who were there to see Jesus again, uh, the ones who were helping to form the church, the, all of them, the ones who cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, after he was gone. It's these sons of thunder, these disciples that asked him, what does it mean to be great? Can we be in charge with you when you're in charge? And Jesus said, do you really know what you're asking? If you want to be great, you have to be willing to sacrifice it all for me. Follow me. Willingly give your life as a servant for all. Greatness. In the Gospel of John, there's one um, prayer, one statement of Jesus where he's teaching the disciples about what it'll be like after he's gone. He talks about greatness. And I would just like to read that excerpt very quickly and summarize everything we've said to this point and then leave you to discuss this concept amongst yourselves. John chapter 14. Um, I guess we'll start in verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? <clears throat> the words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus talks about greatness. Whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works than these will he do. 
there's two ways to define that word greatness, and this is what I'm going to kind of close with, this thought. Greatness as in more significant, more powerful, you know, better, or greatness in terms of number, frequency, um, more, better or more. Some people believe that Jesus is saying here, those who will come after me uh, will do even greater things than I did. But how could we do a greater thing than dying for the sins of the world on the cross? How could we do a greater thing than being Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah? So I don't think that the word greater here means we'll do greater things, better things than Jesus. But greater, those who come after me will do greater, will do more. We will heal like Jesus heals. We will have words of knowledge from the Lord. Well, God will speak into our heart just like God spoke through Jesus to that Samaritan woman. I know that the man you're with isn't your husband. And if you've been married seven times, like he, the things that we will know, the prayers for healing that we will pray and see God answer more of the same, greater and more and more and more. If we want to be great, we will serve and we will serve abundantly out of the overflow of love that we have for God. We want to be like Jesus and the way that he served, the way he washed feet. That foot washing is only in John's gospel and the son of thunder who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village. Maybe he came to truly understand what it meant to be great. Maybe that depiction of the washing of the disciples' feet was a turning point for him. It's only in his gospel. He understood humility. Whoever would be great must become servant of all. You know, he was with Jesus every step of the way from the beginning to the end. And he continued on and he wrote. And we now follow in the footsteps of Christ as his apprentices. What will it look like for us to live great lives? Lives of more lives of service, lives of continual daily searching for opportunities to show the glory of Christ to the world. Let's not strive to be greater than Jesus in terms of better, greater than him in terms of more important, more prominent. Let us become less, like John the Baptist says, so that Christ may become more. But as we make ourselves less, let's become less and less and less as we serve more and more and more. May our greatness be in the the constancy and the muchness of our service, not in the desire to do something special or be recognized or have it be important. Let us not search for prominence. Let us search for small uh, elements of significance throughout our lives so that At our funeral, people would say, this person lived a great life, and it would be defined by all those little, little moments, small moments, where we serve the same way that Jesus did, in quiet, small corners, answering questions, answering prayers, meeting people's needs, sitting in prayer and asking the Father to work and build His kingdom in this world. May we define greatness the way Jesus did. And may we as Christians truly be great. May we be much. May we be plentiful. May we be fruitful. May we bear great fruit, much fruit, as we serve in the small areas of life. And may that manifest itself in a wonderful, huge kingdom that grows from the tiniest mustard seed of faith. May God bless you as we seek His greatness and true greatness this week.